Hey, welcome to First Church. So good to see you guys. And this morning we have family meeting out at Stone Canyon as well as others who will join us later online. So if you would, put your hands together welcome them into our time of study here today. Well, before we dive into the message, I just want to take a brief moment to celebrate what God did last Sunday here at First Church. We serve an incredible God. He is definitely working through our church family. And so we recognize and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, but also God used us to introduce His love to tons of people last Sunday. So some of you guys have asked about stats and what, uh, what were some of the results from last Sunday. So let me share with you some of those things. First of all, last Sunday, we had our largest single Sunday attendance here at First Church in three years with well over 2,000 people worshiping with us. I mean, that is just great. Yeah, you can clap for that. That is awesome. I know sometimes people say, well, churches shouldn't be all about numbers. Well, I kind of disagree with that. Now, we shouldn't be all about numbers for the sake of numbers. I get that. But numbers are people, and people matter to God. And the more people who get to hear about the love of God, the better. And so we're all about getting as many people in here to hear about the love of God and also to reach as many people out there as we possibly can. You know, when you look in Scripture, how is it that they knew that 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost or 5,000 people were fed by Jesus on one occasion, 4,000 on a different occasion, or for that matter, 500 people witnessed the resurrection of Jesus after the fact? How did they know that? Because somebody counted, and God wanted us record those numbers in scripture you know why numbers matter because they're people and people matter to him so we're we're just so excited that all those people got to hear about God's love last Sunday but also we challenged uh, 400 of our North Garnett attenders to come to our 8 a.m. service our special service that we added to help with the crowd flow and we ended up having over 500 of you guys come to our 8 a.m. service we weren't sure if we were going to get 400 but we got over 500 of you guys so thank you so much. I think that just shows that you guys are believing in what we're doing here. And also you wanted to make room for all the guests that we had last weekend. Got some more things to celebrate as well out at Stone Canyon, our Stone Canyon family. Uh, they had their largest single Sunday attendance in three years as well, doubling what they normally average on a Sunday. So thank you, Stone Canyon. That's great. I know that they... You guys are going to be clapping a whole lot, and that's all right. That's, that's a good thing. But I know they invited us, some people, had some first-time guests there. So that is awesome that Stone Canyon is so excited about introducing people to Jesus. Now, of course, we had our Easter offering. And this year's Easter offering, we didn't set a goal. We didn't have a match like we've had in years past. We just said we want to pay off our debt here at First Church. And that offering was going to go towards that because we want to be a debt-free church. That will allow us to do more ministry. And so we just said give to help pay off the debt. And as of today... You guys have given over $135,000 towards our special Easter offering. I mean, that is just phenomenal. And we give God all the credit for that. But probably the highlight of Easter Sunday, for me at least, were the baptisms that took place on our back patio. We had one person after another come be baptized, and that was such a great experience. And that's what it's all about. We love seeing people enter into a relationship with Jesus and be made new in Him. And so in case you missed some of the extra things that were going on, maybe you were here last Sunday for services, but you missed maybe like the Good Friday service that took place out of Stone Canyon, or maybe you missed the hood hunts or even the baptisms that afternoon, we've put together a highlight video to show you some of those extra things. So take a look at this video real fast.
All I can say is our God is incredible, isn't he? Uh, we are just so excited about what he's doing in this place, and we're pumped that you guys are bought into the mission that he has given us as well. And the thing is, we don't celebrate the resur resurrection of Jesus just once a year. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single week here. He is alive, and we just want to keep the party that is the resurrection going and invite as many people to that party as we can. So thank you guys who volunteered and helped. We appreciate everything that you guys do, and let's just keep the party going as a church. Well, speaking of parties, I'm going to transition into the message now. And if you go to a party, a birthday party, a graduation party, maybe an anniversary party, typically there's food there. And one common food that you have in, at a party is what? Cake, right? Cake is pretty common. And I know people are partial towards white cake or chocolate cake, and I just want to see what type of cake you guys like here. So go ahead and shout out, holler, hoop, do whatever you want to do, hoop and holler, do whatever you want to do to let me know what type of cake you like. So how many white cake fans do we have? Let me hear you. Okay, not as many as I thought. There were more in the earlier service, okay? How many chocolate cake fans do we have? Wow, 11 a.m. service is a chocolate cake service. Okay, it was almost even the service before. How many guys just like cake, though? Anybody just like cake in general? That's, that's what I thought. That's what I figured. That's my son, Alex. He loves cake. Doesn't matter what kind. He just loves cake. And when he eats cake, he goes all in. And he makes a mess, but he loves it. And you can tell that he loves it. A couple weeks ago, some of my family came in from Kentucky and visited my mom and dad and my brother and his wife and their kid. They came in together. It was the first time we'd all been together in Oklahoma. And it was a lot of fun. But they all visited to celebrate my mom's 60th birthday. Now, she may not have wanted me to tell you that she's 60, but Anyway, don't tell her, okay? But she turned 60, and we had this party for her, and like I said, it was a whole lot of fun. Uh, but we ordered enough cupcakes for an army, and so we had cupcakes with just about every meal uh, for several days following them visiting. And so one afternoon, we're having McDonald's as a family, and Alex wanted a cupcake, and I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he ate a cupcake after he's finished with his food, and I looked across the table, and this is what I saw. I had to take a picture of him. Take a look at this. I mean, when he eats a cupcake, he eats a cupcake. He is all in, and he loves it. It was funny, a couple days after that, we went over to someone's house that goes to our church. Uh, their little boy was having a birthday party. He invited Alex, and so they took all the kids into another room to have cake, and all the parents kind of stayed in the living room and talked, and after a few minutes, Alex came into where the parents were, and he had icing all over his face, kind of like that picture you just saw, but he also had all over his hand, and it was kind of like running down his arm, and I looked at him, I was like, buddy, I get how you get all over your face. How'd you get all over your hand like that? And he looked at me and he said, I didn't have a fork. And I thought, well, okay, you make do. You do what you got to do. I guess this is my brilliant child here. You know, you just eat it with your hand. So I took him to the bathroom. I got him all cleaned up. I was washing him off. And I said, I was laughing. I said, buddy, you're just a mess. And he said, yeah, but you still love me, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I do. You're a mess, but I still love you. You know, we've all made messes at different points in our lives, haven't we? Sometimes, well, we've even made a mess of life in general. And if there was a guy who met Jesus who made a mess of his life, it was definitely a guy named Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. And Matthew is an interesting case because he had made a mess of his life not because of icing or cake, but for much more serious reasons. See, Matthew was a Jew by birth. And he had another name. Most Jewish men in the first century world had two names. And his other name, Levi. Levi was a strong Jewish name. It was a powerful Jewish name. It probably represented the tribe from which his ancestors came from, the tribe of Levi. 
And if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that the tribe of Levi, they were in charge of organizing and overseeing the religious activities and worship services. So that meant that Levi probably came from a very rich religious heritage, a strong spiritual past. But at some point along the way, at some point in his life, Levi abandoned all that. Matthew walked away from all that and decided to become a Roman tax collector. See, in this day and age, the Romans had conquered the Jewish people, which meant they occupied the Jewish lands. And what they did was they oppressed the Jews. And one way that they oppressed the Jews was by taxing them. And they taxed them pretty bad. According to some historians, the Romans taxed the Jewish people up to 60% of their personal income. You think we have high tax rates. Think about giving away 60% of your personal income to the government, a government that you don't even agree with, a government that you don't even like that's forcing you to give that money. That's the state that the Jews were in in the first century world. And Matthew is a Jew by birth but has abandoned his people and now he's working for the enemy collecting taxes. And tax collectors, they had a reputation. They were known for swindling people out of money. They were known for being corrupt. And they were personally wealthy. The way that they got their wealth, though, was by cheating people. See, Romans say, okay, we want 6% of the income from that area. And a tax collector would say, okay. And they would go and then charge people a 70% tax or 75% tax. And then they would take the top 10, 15% off for themselves. And Rome didn't care if they did that. As long as Rome got their cut, as long as Rome got their number, they didn't care how much the tax collectors kept for themselves so a lot of these tax collectors cheated people that's the reputation they had and Matthew he's one of those guys and he hangs out with those guys Matthew would have been considered a traitor among traitors with his people as Matthew walked down the street people probably would have given him nasty looks they didn't like him they didn't care for him and this is the guy who Jesus meets one day by the sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum See, Capernaum was a port city, and Matthew is collecting taxes on this day, but he's not collecting personal income taxes. No, he's collecting a toll. See, Rome also had their tax collectors set up uh, toll booths so that when people would travel in and out of a city or travel along a certain highway or whatever, they could get extra money. Well, Capernaum was a major port city. It was the first city that you would enter as you came to the region of Galilee. So Matthew is set up by the shore collecting taxes and probably taking custom fees and stuff like that, getting more and more money out of people. And as he's sitting there at his tax booth one afternoon, this new rabbi comes on the scene. This guy named Jesus. And Jesus teaches by the shore and crowds of people flock to Jesus. There are people gathering all around him. And Jesus teaches there, we believe, for some time, maybe even for days. And he doesn't just teach. He also starts to do miracles. One miracle that we have recorded in Scripture is that he healed a man who had been paralyzed. I mean, he's doing some major miracles here. And Matthew is sitting close by, sitting at his tax booth, doing his job, the job that Rome has commissioned him to do. But he's listening. He's listening to Jesus' teachings. He's listening about the rumors that people are saying about this man named Jesus. He's probably witnessed a miracle or two himself. And he starts to hear the buzz that this guy named Jesus isn't your typical rabbi. He's a prophet sent from God. And some people were probably saying, could this be the Messiah we've been longing for? Now, Matthew may have abandoned his people by this point, but he still grew up a Jew. He knew the prophecies about one day a Messiah would come to rescue the Jewish people. 
So Matthew's hearing all this buzz about Jesus. He's listening to Jesus teach. He's probably seen a miracle too. And he's probably wondering, could Jesus be the guy? And Jesus finishes teaching by the sea. And he walks by Matthew's booth, his tax collecting booth. And what's interesting is Jesus stops. And he looks Matthew right in the eye and says something to him. And what he said to Matthew probably shocked Everybody who was witnessing this play out. If you would look with me in Matthew chapter 9, that's where we're going to be today. And let's start at verse 9 as we see this scene play out. And verse 9 of Matthew 9 says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Those two words, follow me, probably would have sent shockwaves through the crowd. Those two words, follow me, would have left everyone stunned. You probably could have heard a pin drop when Jesus said, follow me. Everybody went silent, kind of like when I broke that mirror last Sunday. You know, you could have heard a pin drop in the room when I did that. Everything probably went quiet in that moment. And Matthew himself was probably caught totally off guard. Because those words, follow me, They carried a lot more weight in the first century Jewish world than they do in our culture today. Those two words, follow me, had extraordinary implications. Because they were the two words that every Jewish little boy wanted to hear one day. They were the two words that every parent wanted their little boy to hear one day. Because those were the words that a rabbi would say to a young man when the rabbi thought that young man was worthy to become his official follower, his official disciple, his protege. Because rabbis wanted to pass their legacy on to someone else. They wanted to pass their legacy on to, a, to the next generation. And so they would look for young men who could carry their mantle, who could keep their legacy going. And every parent wanted their little boy to be a rabbi. Rabbis were well respected. They had a lot of influence. They were the religious leaders and teachers. Every parent wanted their son to be a rabbi. And so parents would send their boys off to rabbinic school and they would learn the Old Testament scriptures. And then after that, they would put their sons before a rabbi, a well-known teacher. And that rabbi would basically put them through an audition process. He would test them and try them. And after some time of testing them, the rabbi would decide whether or not that young man was worthy to be his protege, worthy to carry on his legacy. And the way that you knew you were worthy is the rabbi would look you in the eye and he would say two words, follow me. And when the rabbi said those two words to you, not only was it an honor, you had to give up everything. You would leave your family, you would leave your friends, you would leave your home. If you had a job, you left your job. If you were still in school, you would leave your school. The moment that a rabbi said to you, follow me, you left everything to go do life with him. And your whole goal in life was to be as much like that rabbi as you possibly could be. You walked wherever he walked. You listened to everything he said. You did whatever he did. I mean, if a rabbi was walking down a sidewalk and he picked up a blade of grass and put it in his mouth, you You picked up a blade of grass. You put it in your mouth. You followed him exactly because you wanted to be as much like him as you possibly could be. It was a great honor to be the student, to be the disciple of a rabbi like this. And what's interesting is when Jesus turns to Matthew, he says those words that every little Jewish boy wanted to hear. And Matthew knew exactly what he was asking. He was asking for a lifetime commitment. 
Jesus was asking for total surrender in that moment. Now, that's not what we hear when we hear the words, follow me, is it? I mean, we've probably used those words before. You've used those words. you said to somebody, hey, come follow me, or somebody said it to you. We use those words, follow me, all the time, but we mean something different than a lifetime commitment, typically. Typically, when we ask somebody to follow us or when someone asks us to follow them, what we're talking about is a rather simple, often short journey, a simple, short process. Following someone is usually safe, quick, and it involves very little investment thought or effort in our culture. Let me illustrate it like this. Does anybody collect or have any of the Starbucks You Are Here or Been There series mugs? You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody have some of these? Okay, that's what I thought. I see several hands out there. I've got a few of them. You know, when you go to certain states, you can get them as kind of a keepsake. But you have to buy these mugs uh, where um, uh, the, in the state that they're sold in or the place that you go visit. You can't just, like, get them online. You actually got to go to that place and say, hey, I've been there. And so you get the mug. Well, my brother, he's two years younger than me. His name's Philip. He has a ton of these mugs. He's been collecting them for years. He probably has dozens of them, and he has a whole cabinet in his kitchen full of them. Everywhere he goes, he gets one of these Starbucks You Are Here mugs. And so several years ago, he and his wife went on their honeymoon, and they went to Anaheim, California, and they visited Disneyland. And so he went to the Starbucks in Disneyland to get one of these mugs that said Disneyland on it. But here's the thing, they were out. They didn't have any. And so I called him when he got back from his honeymoon. I was like, you know, how was it? How was the trip? And he said, well, I'm kind of disappointed. And I thought, you just got back from your honeymoon? You're disappointed already? I mean, what's going on? But he said, well, no, not because of that. He said, I'm disappointed because I didn't get one of the Starbucks mugs at Disneyland. They were out of them. And I was like, oh, I hate to hear that. Sorry about that. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but whatever. Okay, sorry to hear about that. Uh, well, a couple years passed. Alice and, I, Allison and I had the chance to go to Disneyland, and we took Alex with us. And so I told my brother, I said, hey, if you want one of those mugs, I'll stop by Starbucks there and get you one. He said, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. I said, well, I'll, I'll get you one. So uh, we go to Disney. We're there for like three days, and we get to the very last night. We're getting ready to leave. I mean, fireworks have already gone off. Nighttime parade is finished. Everybody's exiting Disneyland, and all of a sudden, I remembered that I forgot to get him one of those mugs, and I was like, man, I got to go do that. So Alex was already asleep in the stroller, and Allison said, I'll just stay here with him. You go back in Disneyland, get him one of those mugs. So I'm fighting through the crowd. I'm trying to get to Starbucks, but I forgot where Starbucks was, and you couldn't stir the crowd with a stick. There were people everywhere, and I was just lost, and finally, I found a Disneyland worker, and I was just like, hey, where's your Starbucks? And you know what that Disneyland worker said? He goes, just come follow me. And so I did. I followed him right to Starbucks. And on the way there, we were talking. I said, yeah, I got I to gotta get one of these mugs for my brother. And he said, oh, I understand. Yeah, people collect those. So he takes me right to Starbucks. He shows me where the mugs are. I go get it, pay for it. And guess what? I take my mug and I go on my way. And that Disneyland worker, he leaves and he goes on his way. Now, when that worker said, come follow me, he wasn't inviting me to hang out with him that night. He wasn't inviting me to come back to wherever he lived and watch a ball game. He wasn't inviting me to have supper with him or anything like that. He wasn't inviting me to drive home with him or to spend the rest of my days with him. He wasn't inviting me to come and have a lifetime relationship with him in any way. If I would have continued to hang out with that Disneyland worker after he showed me where Starbucks was, he probably would have called security on me. I probably would have been in a lot of trouble, honestly. I knew what he meant. He knew what he meant. Come follow me until you get what you want, and then you can go on your way, and I'll go on my way. That's our definition of follow me in our culture today. And sadly, because that's our definition today, I think that has affected, it's affected us when we hear Jesus use the words follow me. 
Because what we often do is we say, hey, Jesus, I need something from you. And Jesus says, follow me. And so we follow him until we get what we want. If we need comfort during a crisis or we need support or help or strength during a different moment in life, we follow him until we get what we want. And then once we get what we want, we say, okay, Jesus, you go on your way and I'll go on my way and live my life and you live your life. We follow him for a while because following someone is a pretty quick, short journey with very little commitment or investment. But that's not what Matthew would have heard when he heard the words, follow me. He knew that Jesus was asking for total surrender, a lifetime commitment, and so Matthew has a decision to make here. He has to ask himself, is saying yes to Jesus worth it? Because I want you to think about everything that Matthew would have had to have given up in order to follow Jesus. I know we just talked about how Matthew was kind of despised by his own people, but there were other people in his culture that would have loved to have lived the life that Matthew lived. See, Matthew was extremely wealthy. He had a ton of power, a ton of influence. He had every desire at his fingertips. There were people who dreamed of living Matthew's life. And if he was to walk away from his tax collecting booth, there would have been 100 people waiting in line to take his job. People wanted what he had. And if Matthew walked away, he was leaving all that. He was leaving all that wealth, all that comfort, all that power, all that influence. He was leaving it all behind. And here's the thing. Once you walked away from your tax collecting booth, there was no coming back. See, there were other people that Jesus said, follow me to. And they left everything like, Some of the other disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen, right? And the Bible says that they left their nets behind. And they did. They left everything they knew, the comforts that they knew, and to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. If the whole Jesus thing didn't work out, they could still come back and pick up their nets because there was always a need for fish. Matthew, he would have to find something else to do. Once he abandoned his post, his Roman post, Rome would not have let him back. This was a forever move for him. And so Matthew has to ask himself the question, is saying yes to Jesus worth it? And honestly, that's the same choice that we all have to make as well. Because that invitation to follow Jesus isn't just for Matthew. It's for all of us. In Luke 9, verse 23 through verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to leave your old life and follow me. And then he goes on to say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. When Jesus uses that language, follow me, what he has in mind is first century discipleship. He's asking us to do life with him daily. And that means us giving up our old way of life. And I think this is something that We've missed in our church culture today. Jesus never intended following him to be a part-time gig. It's a lifelong journey with him. And yet sometimes that's how we treat following him. You know, we follow him for a while because it's Easter time. So let's come to church and let's get our little Jesus fixed. But then we want to go and live our own way. So we go on our way. We need him in the moment. So we go and we try to find him. And then once we get what we want... We leave him behind, and we let him go do his thing, and we do our thing. But Jesus never intended following him to be a part-time gig. It's a lifelong journey with him. And I wonder, 
if that's how we define following Jesus as a lifelong journey. Because saying yes to Jesus requires us to process two realities. Both the invitation that he's offering us and the investment that he's asking us to make. Because Jesus is inviting us to live a new life, to have salvation in him, but also going along with that, he asks us to invest our entire lives in him. And a lot of us, we like the invitation, we like the call to salvation, we love that. But the investment, the cost, you don't know about that. See, Jesus isn't just inviting us to live a new life, he's asking us to leave our old life behind, and that's where we get hung up sometimes. That's where we have issues. And a lot of churches know that, and that's why some churches have just settled for being social clubs. Places where people can come together and they can get entertained with nice worship and a decent sermon. They can get their little Jesus fix for the week or for the month, depending on how often people come. And they get their little Jesus fix and they can go on their way. And they're just part of a nice Christian social club. But I want to let you know something. We here at First Church... We're not a social club. We don't want to be. We're not trying to be. We don't claim to be. We're not a club where you just come and place membership and have your name on some roll book and say, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm a member over there because my name's on a book somewhere. That's not who we are. We are a Jesus-centered community, which means we're a community, we're a family that's trying to follow Jesus together. We're trying to become more and more like him. So we have this mission statement, love Jesus, love like Jesus, and that's a great mission statement. I love it. And we have it on t-shirts, we have it on posters, we have it all over the place. But we're not a church where people come together and say, oh, love Jesus, love like Jesus, that sounds nice and that's cool, and then we go on and we do whatever we want to do. No, we want to be a church where people are actually loving Jesus and loving like Jesus every single day. We don't want to be a club. We want to be a community that's doing life together with Jesus. And what that means is we don't want you just to be a member of our church. We want you to partner with our church to actually carry out Jesus' mission in this world. And so what that means is we want everyone to agree to do life Jesus' way, to be more and more like him all the time. So what exactly does that look like? Well, the more I've studied Jesus' life, the more I've realized that Jesus basically did three things. I mean, he did a lot of things, but he basically, he basically did three things all the time. Those three things were he maintained a healthy relationship with his heavenly father. He pursued his heavenly father constantly. He, second, he did life with people. He did life in community to help others grow. And then third, he carried out his father's mission. He unleashed his father's love on the lives around him. And I think, honestly, if we're going to be a church that continues to love Jesus and love like Jesus and grow to be more and more like him all the time, we've got to do those three things. We've got to be a church where we partner together and we say, we're going to do those three things every single day. We're going to pursue Jesus. We're going to do life together, grow together, and we are going to unleash his love on the world around us. And if we will be a church where everyone commits to doing those three things, following his example, I believe not only will it change us and change the life of our church, it will change the lives of the people who live around us because we will look more and more like the one we're trying to follow. 
So we're going to talk more about what that looks like in this series, about pursuing Jesus, growing together, and unleashing his love. We're going to talk more about that in this series, and also we're going to continue to flesh that out as we get into the fall season, because that's what we want you to partner with us in doing. But before we can really talk more about that, we have to decide, you and me, we have to decide whether or not we want to follow Jesus in the first place. And that's the decision that Matthew had to make in the passage that we're looking at. And let's look and see what choice he makes. Matthew 9, verse 9. Let's go back to that verse. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And here's Matthew's response. And Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew's Matthew's response seems to be immediate here. He knew what Jesus was asking. He knew Jesus was asking for a lifetime commitment, and yet there doesn't seem to be any hesitation whatsoever. When Luke tells of this scene, he gives us a little extra detail. Look at what Luke says in Luke 5, 28. It says, Matthew got up, left everything, left everything, his tax collecting booth, his money, his wealth, his fame, everything, and followed Jesus. See, why did Matthew do this? Why did Matthew leave everything behind instantly? Because Matthew's been listening to Jesus teach. Matthew's witnessed some miracles. Matthew's heard the buzz surrounding Jesus. And Matthew knows one thing. Jesus has been sent from God. Whether Matthew believes he's just a great prophet or Matthew believes he could be the Messiah, Matthew knows Jesus is from God and he speaks on God's behalf. And when Jesus stopped that day at Matthew's booth and said, follow me, what Jesus was telling Matthew was that you are worthy in God's sight. You see, only a worthy student could hear those words from a rabbi. And what Jesus is telling Matthew is, everyone else may look down upon you. Everyone else may judge you. Everybody else may have preconceived ideas about you. Everyone else may give you nasty looks. But when God looks at you, he sees you as worthy. He sees you as worthwhile. And if you will come and follow me, he'll give you a new purpose. He'll show you a new plan for your life. And honestly, I think that's what a lot of people in our culture today need to hear. Because we live in a world where people are living every single day. They're going through the motions. They're paying the rent of life. But they're not living with a greater purpose. They're not living for a greater plan. They don't realize how loved they are by God and what God wants to do with their lives. You guys may have heard about this story. It happened about a year ago, but there's an anonymous artist known as Banksy who does different art pieces, paintings, and so forth, and he sells them for a huge amount of money, but no one really knows who he is. He's kind of mysterious. And in 2018, he put up for auction one of his paintings called Girl and Balloon. You may have heard about this. I don't know if you like this painting or not. Uh, You may or may not want it in your home, but somebody did. It ended up selling at auction for 1.4 million U.S. dollars. Now, when the final gavel fell and it sold for 1.4 million dollars, Banksy is a little bit of a trickster. He likes to play pranks. And he had installed in this frame a paper shredder. So as soon as the gavel fell for 1.4 million dollars, the painting self-destructed. It went through the shredder that was at the bottom of this painting, at the bottom of this frame. 
And immediately, everyone in this auction room started to shout out, oh no, it's worthless, it's worthless. But the person who actually won the painting, won it anyway, decided to keep it and renamed it. So it's a new piece of art, renamed it Love in a Bin, like a trash bin, (laughs) Love in a Bin. Because this collector said, it's still a Banksy original. I know who the artist is. I know the value of it, and I want to keep it. And now, those pieces are worth more than what the painting originally was worth when it was all together. And I think that's a great illustration of what God wants to do in all of our lives. We may have really messed up our lives. Our lives may be in pieces. But God looks at us and says, you still have my image planted on you. I'm still your designer. I still see worth and value in you. And I can turn all the pieces of your life into a masterpiece again. I think that's what our world needs to hear and that's what Matthew needed to hear as well and I think that's why he immediately followed Jesus because he was blown away by this opportunity to realize a new plan for his life, a new plan that God had for his life. See when Jesus said follow me it wasn't just a turning point in Matthew's life, it was the turning point in his life. And I think Matthew lets us know this. Remember, Matthew's a tax collector. He's a numbers guy. And numbers were very important to the Jewish people. And the number seven represented God. And when Matthew tells us of his call, when Jesus invites him to come and follow him, Matthew sandwiches his call in between three miracles on the front end, three miracles on the back end to get a total number of seven events in a row. And here's the thing, he puts it out of chronological order in order to put his calling right in the middle of these miracles. Look at what he does here. If you were to read in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus calming the storm, Jesus healing two demon-possessed men, Jesus healing a paralyzed man, and then we see Jesus calls Matthew. And then after that, we see Jesus raises a dead girl, Jesus heals a sick woman, Jesus heals two blind men. What is Matthew telling us? He is putting his invitation to follow Jesus on the same level of these other miracles that Jesus did of calming the storm and healing a paralyzed man and bringing a dead girl back from the dead. He's putting his call on the same level because Matthew is blown away by the fact that the God who created this universe loves him and has a plan for his life. And that's the message that our world needs to hear, that we have a God who's willing to stop wherever they are, stop at wherever they are and say, follow me because I see you as worthwhile. And Matthew does that. He follows Jesus because he realized that even with all the stuff he had, life with Jesus is better than life without him. And let's see how this story ends. If you want to pick up with me in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. It says... While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so Matthew invites Jesus to come back for supper, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." See, typically when a young man would hear those words, follow me, his family would throw him a going away party because he would no longer be part of their community. Now he's going to follow this rabbi. Matthew doesn't have a family to throw him a going away party, so he throws himself a going away party. He's got the money to do it. So he throws himself this party and look at who he invites. All of his tax collector buddies, all of these quote unquote notorious sinners to be there. Why does he invite them? 
because Jesus has changed him and he wants those people to experience the same change. He wants them to know they can live for a higher purpose, that God has a greater plan for their lives. He wants all of his buddies to know the Jesus who stopped and showed love to him. And what's interesting is, as Jesus is spending time with all these notorious sinners, the religious people are there too. And they say, how dare he eat with riffraff like that? How dare he spend time with these guys? And Jesus knows what they're saying. And Jesus says to them, look again with me, verses 12 through 13, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What he's letting those religious people know is this. You guys think that you're good with God because you keep a checklist. Because you go to religious services. And you tithe your money. And you offer sacrifices. But here's what you're doing. You're following God for a while until you get what you need. And then you're going on your way and you're letting God go on his way. Matthew's different because Matthew isn't just about keeping sacrifices or keeping religious traditions. Matthew has the heart of God. He's captured God's heart. And that's what God's looking for. Matthew may not have been to near as many religious services as you guys have been to, but Matthew has captured God's heart. And because Matthew captured God's heart, God used Matthew to change the world. The first book in our Bible, I mean, first book in our New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. He's the author of the first book in our New Testament because Jesus changed him and Matthew ended up influencing millions of lives. All because he was willing to say yes to doing life with Jesus. Let me ask you, are you willing to say yes to him today? And when I say, say yes, I'm not asking, are you willing just to follow him for a while? Are you willing to give him your entire life? I hope you are. Because if you've been living life without him, doing life without him, how's that working for you? Let's be a church that says yes to doing life Jesus' way. And I believe when we do, when we partner together and do that together, we will change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today and this time we've had to be here as your family. And Father, we just pray that we will be a church that says yes to what you're asking us to do. Whether we're here at North Garnett, out at Stone Canyon, listening online, wherever, Father, may we come together, partner together to carry out your mission for this world and do life your son's way. We thank you for loving us even in the midst of our mess and for giving us a chance to live out a greater purpose, a greater plan in life. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.